with the room set up this way, everyone feels pretty far away. <laughs> I might have to talk louder. <clears throat> Let me know if you don't hear, by the way. So have you noticed that there's a lot of suffering going on? Yeah. Seems like everywhere we look, things are kind of melting down. We've got climate change, war and hatred and oppression, economic inequality, all this stuff going on. So the Buddha noticed this too. And uh, the heart of the Buddha's teaching is about the truth of suffering and the path out of suffering. It's the first noble truth is that suffering exists. So I want to talk today about how we can practice the art of suffering so that we can use this suffering that is apparently inescapable, it's around us and in us, how we can use that for transformation rather than just to feel defeated by it. So it's, it's relatively easy for us to look out there and see the suffering that exists. You know, we just have to uh, look at the news or um, read Facebook and we can see it a little more challenging to see the suffering that exists within us. But we have to know our own suffering if it's possible for us to transform it. We can't do it without being able to see it clearly. So what I'd like to do is introduce a three-step process we can use to suffer well. Instead of the idea that we shouldn't suffer, we, it's, it's inescapable. So let's do this well. Let's practice the art of suffering instead of the oppression of suffering. So the three steps, and I'll go into them in some detail, are naming our suffering, allowing our suffering, and embracing our suffering. So those are the three steps. So let's talk about naming, first of all. Uh, knowing that we are suffering is not an obvious truth. So how often have you been asked the question, how are you? And you say, fine, damn it. <laughs> but I'm not suffering. What's wrong with you? You know, we have a, a built-in um, set of tools that we use to hide our suffering from ourselves. We all have it. Our personalities, the things we think of as our personality traits, are largely the tools we have developed to not see our suffering. So like, for instance, you might say, uh, I talk a lot. Well, so I don't have to hear the truth. Or I like to keep busy so that I can't feel my loneliness. Or, you know, my kids are everything to me because I'm afraid I don't matter. You know, these things we think of as our core personality, if we really look at it, a lot of them are the techniques we use to not see our own suffering. And they feel like me, like all those things, those core personality traits are, feel like me, but actually they just keep us estranged from our true selves. 
The things we think of as our small self are keeping us from seeing our true self. So, every one of us is a complete and total wreck. We are a mess. Every single one of us. And if we don't see that, we're stuck in this process of suffering oppressively instead of suffering transformationally. Anne Lamott, the author, wrote, My mind is a neighborhood I try not to go into alone. (laughs) She sees that she's a mess. And when she can see that, then she can begin the process of getting out of the prison of her own karma. Our reflexive protections that try and keep us away from our suffering, they are our suffering. I'm going to say that again. Our protective response to our suffering, that is our suffering. We think it's about something out there, but it's actually the protective responses we've developed that are our suffering. To me, that's a liberating realization because I have some choice and control about that. I don't about all those things I think of as my suffering. I can't change whether this person said this or whether our government's like that, but I can have some control over my response to it. So our first step in this is to actually name our suffering, to see it and name it. Now, I want to distinguish between naming and blaming because they at first feel the same. So blaming is when we look outside at something and say, that's my suffering. So if only she hadn't done that, I'd be fine. If we had a different president, I wouldn't be suffering. You know, blaming confuses external events with internal feelings. I feel this way in here because of that. That's blaming. But naming is recognizing our own internal physical experience in the present moment. So uh, blaming is about out there, it's about the mind. Naming is about in here, about the body. So when we name, we're not naming something big like my anxiety. No, we're naming what's happening in this moment in the physical body. That's what we're naming. The mind simply is not reliable enough for us to count on it to be able to name our experience. Our mind is largely those coping mechanisms that we've been using to prevent ourselves from feeling suffering. So they have an inherent interest in not letting us see our suffering. They want to, they want to put it out there. They want it's, Blame this, blame that. But if we're going to name it, we have to look at our physical experiences right here in our body in this moment. The mind is just trying to obscure things from us. We can't trust it. So what would naming look like? Naming would look like, "Mm, there's a twisting in my gut. That's naming my present moment experience. My shoulders are tense. 
That's naming my experience. I can't sit still. That's naming my present moment physical experience. So compare that to, I feel anxious because of blaming something outside. That's not naming it. I'm angry because of, that's not naming it. Naming it is knowing the physical sensation in our body in the present moment. Um, luckily, this is uh, a big part of the process and, and something we can start to practice right away. We can start to practice and notice these physical sensations. Uh, like, for instance, when the, when the loud airplane flies over, what are we naming? You know, are, we, are we pointing at the airplane and saying, that thing? No, that's not it. That's, that's blaming. But if we can name what happens to us, I, I, for myself, I, I, I tend to feel a little bit of a contraction like this, a kind of a, a protection from that. I, I think this isn't a good thing, so my body kind of uh, comes in like this. So I can name that. That's my suffering right there. And if I, if I can just see that, I have some way of moving forward. Okay, so that's the naming part. <clears throat> and all these are huge. I mean, we're, we're, we're looking at three things in our talk tonight, but we could spend a lot of time on any one of them. Uh, but I trust you to take it into your practice and, and know this for yourself. So when we name something, now we go to the next step, which is allowing. Once our suffering is present in our awareness, then we invite it to remain in our awareness. And again, this is counterintuitive because all of our protection mechanisms are about pushing it out of awareness, finding something to do that turns it out of our attention. So like for instance, I'm lonely, oh, I notice it, so I go eat, right? <clears throat> or I'm sad, oh, I feel this in my body, this kind of sadness, so I turn on the TV. I'm bored, so what do I do? I pull out my phone, right? So this is counterintuitive because all these coping strategies are about getting us to not pay attention to it. So instead, let's turn toward it. So there's two ways of turning toward it. <clears throat> One is we turn toward it by not indulging those habitual coping strategies anymore. So when I'm lonely and, I, and I, my impulse is to eat, I say, no, I can stay with my loneliness instead. I can stay with this physical feeling. I don't need to go to the refrigerator to distract myself. I'm going to turn toward that feeling. When there's sadness in my body, instead of going and turning on the TV, I can stay with this sensation of sadness. When we do this, we can begin to see clearly for ourselves that those coping strategies lead us just to more suffering. They don't actually address the underlying physical sensation that is going on that we don't like. They don't take it away. They just distract us from it, and it's back there again. 
it doesn't help. So ultimately, we have to learn how to suffer by learning what causes us to suffer. And what causes us to suffer are those very coping strategies. So we turn away from them and we stay with this uncomfortable feeling. So that's, that's one way we allow. The other way we allow is that we actively turn toward the physical sensations and we start to get curious about them. What is this? What is going on here? When I, when I feel that reaction to the airplane flying over, what is actually happening in my body? So there's this contraction. Okay, so I'm going to stay with that awareness for a while. I'm just going to watch that. What does that feel like? Well, it's a kind of a heavy slumping feeling. And I, when I stay with it, I notice I can't sustain it for very long. It takes a lot of work. And I notice if I do stay with it for long, my back muscles start to hurt a little bit. And I notice that it's changing over time. It doesn't last very long. So I just stay curious about it and stay with it. And, and what, I what I found is when I do that, begin to break these physical sensations that I, that I feared so much that I had to always have some coping mechanism to take me away from them, they start to break into little constituent parts that, are, that don't last very long, that change in quality and quantity pretty quickly. And I think, really? That's what I've been fleeing all this time? This little physical sensation? It doesn't seem nearly as bad as I thought. So by turning toward it, I, I begin to gain some confidence that, oh, I can be with that. You know, e even just in the last few years, one of the things I've done this with is getting a shot. Because, you know, somewhere in my past, I got stabbed with a needle, and I thought that was like the end of the world, that this was surely going to cause me to die. And so, you know, tears and resistance and all this kind of stuff. And um, so I made a choice a few years ago to actually really pay attention as I was getting an injection. And it's like, it's no big deal. I was, I was running from that. You know, I was getting fear and anxiety and all this sort of stuff. Oh, no, I got to get a flu shot. Oh. And it was nothing. It was nothing. I was suffering totally from my coping mechanism, not from the event itself. So you start to get you start to get some confidence that, that hey you can do this, you know you're, the things you're running away from aren't really that big after all. And that is so much easier to to say I can be with that physical sensation of that injection, than it is to say I can be with fear, I can be with anxiety, I can be with anger. Those things are huge. You can't take that on. You can't learn to be with that because it's just a big made-up thing. There's nothing actually to cope with. But the physical sensation, ah, I can cope with that. So allowing tends to give us some bravery, some courage, that, that this messy thing that I am, not that big a deal after all. So I'm a mess. Well, okay, I can be a mess. I don't have to run from that. 
I don't have to solve that before I'm happy. I can just be a happy mess. <laughs> so that leads us to the third step, which is embracing. And ultimately, allowing isn't enough by itself. Naming and allowing by itself are not enough. We need love to really help us transform our suffering. Those first two steps allow us to be with it, and they're really important, but they don't end up transforming it for us. We have to embrace it with love. And when we do that, we find that love is both the path to transformation and the destination of our transformation. So when we turn to when we turn toward with love and allow this thing to be here with this sense of underlying calmness and kindness, we are already awake. Already awake in that moment. Our loving response to suffering is awakening itself. In that moment, we're a Buddha. We're a Bodhisattva. We don't have anywhere to get to to be that. We're already that. So this turning towards our experience with kindness and embracing it, we begin to see that these experiences that we thought we had to flee are actually our teachers. That we couldn't wake up without them. They are the mud that our lotus blooms in. And all this time we've been running from the blooming of our own lotus because we've been afraid of that suffering. But this is how we wake up. We turn toward our suffering with kindness and our heart awakens. And we practice this way over and over and over again. So when I have this feeling of when the airplane goes over and my body goes, oh, it contracts, I can hold that with kindness. I can say to myself, ah, I see you trying to protect me. Thank you for that. As Ty says, we pick it up like a little baby, that crying baby that made my body go, oh. We just pick that up and say, oh, thank you. We rock it for a moment. We do this over and over and over again in all the little ways that we turn towards our suffering and notice those physical sensations. And when we do that, we're training ourselves how to meet life. We move from meeting life with resistance, which is our habitual way, to meeting life with kindness. It's such a lovely way to live. So Thich Nhat Hanh had to learn this for himself. And his story has had a big, big impact on me and a big impact on the way we practice. So the part of his story I'd like to tell tonight uh, is probably familiar to most of us, but it's worth reviewing. So Thai started uh, the Youth for Social Service in Vietnam to care for the, the villagers and uh, that were bombed repeatedly over and over and over again. And so this group of young people 
would go into the bombed out villages, help people rebuild, and then the village would get bombed again, and they'd go back, and the village would get bombed again, and they'd go back. And they, they uh, lost the trust of both sides in the war because they would take neither side. They would help anybody. So when Thich Nhat Hanh had a chance to go and negotiate for peace in Paris in 1966 and he left the country, he wasn't allowed to come back. The government wouldn't let him back in. And it was almost 40 years before he finally was able to go back home. So he suffered a lot, a lot. All his work, the people he loved were all there. And he did, he tried to work from a distance. He tried to help the boat people after the South Vietnamese government fell and so many people fled in boats. He tried to help them by sending, getting a large boat to collect these people from rickety rafts. And uh, even when he could do that, then nobody would take the boat. Nobody would take the people into their port. Uh, and he, he felt like his life was so much suffering. He couldn't help, he couldn't do what he wanted to do. He, he lost his home. He lost his sense of purpose. So he uh, turned to his practice. He turned to paying attention to the moment-to-moment -moment experience of being in his body. And for him, for him in particular, he chose walking meditation. So he chose to take every step with complete awareness, being, being home in his body as completely as possible. And when he arrived home in that step, then he could take another step and arrive home in that step. He couldn't go home, but he could arrive home in the present moment with every step. And paying attention to his body in this way showed him that the suffering wasn't out there. It was in here. It was in his own way he was coping with it. And that all he had to do to transform his suffering was to come back to his body in the present moment and take that step. That's the home he was looking for. It wasn't the soil of Vietnam, although that was still special and precious. But the real home he was looking for was the awakening of being present in this moment, in this body, and now in this moment, in this body. Our challenge is to do that in our bodies, in our moments. Conditions are always good enough for us to be awake always. We might lose sight of that, like Thai lost sight of that for some time, because sometimes our suffering is very great. And I don't want to minimize that there are events outside of us that do cause tremendous sadness in us, tremendous emotional upheaval in us. We all know this. You know, no one in this room has gone through this life without losing someone close to them, 
for instance, from facing a, a severe injustice, facing an oppression. When we, when we have these experiences, they, get, they engender strong physical um, responses in our bodies. And I don't want to minimize that that's true. I have a friend who's, who's recently lost her daughter, and she's experiencing these strong, strong feelings. And they're true. They're real. That's her experience in the moment. So I don't want to minimize and say you shouldn't ever feel anything because that's just not the way it is. We do feel. We do feel. But the way through it is not to distance ourselves from it. It's to turn toward it with love. Turn toward this experience in this body, in this moment. That will transform us. Looking outside and blaming will not. So to summarize those three steps, we name the physical sensations in the present moment that we are experiencing. We allow those physical sensations by turning away from our old habits and turning toward the sensations themselves. And then we embrace those sensations with loving kindness and hold them invite them to tell us about themselves. So I want to end by reading uh, a different way of talking about this same thing. And this is from John O'Donohue. Some of you may know his his poetry, uh, Irish poet that died a few years ago. And this is a little short piece called The Art of Developing a Beautiful Mind. The world is not simply there. Everything and everyone we see, we view through the lenses of our thoughts. Your mind is where your thoughts arise and form. It is not simply with your eyes, but with your mind that you see the world. So much depends upon your mind, how you see yourself, who you think you are, how you see others, what you think the meaning of life is, how you see death, belief, God, darkness. Beauty is all determined by the style of mind you have. Your mind is your greatest treasure. We become so taken up with the world, with having and doing more and more, we come to ignore who we are and forget forget what we see the world with. The most powerful way to change your life is to change your mind. When you beautify your mind, you beautify your world. You learn to see differently. In what seemed like dead situations, secret possibilities and invitations begin to open before you. In old suffering that held you long paralyzed, you find new keys. When your mind awakens, your life comes alive and the creative adventure of your soul takes off. Passion and compassion become your new companions. So that's John, o, John, John O'Donohue. That's all I'm going to say tonight about 
this, but as you can see, this is something that we could be diving into together uh, quite a bit. And there's so many different lenses by which we could come into these processes of leaning into our experience instead of away from our experience. So this is just one, one possibility of, of how we could talk about it. So should we have a couple of bells and then we'll move into our discussion?